So there weren't a ton of trade-offs. And I think part of that was because we started with such a simple MVP. And the way we were able to decide this is what we're building and these are the constraints is because I did that boring work of reading through literally every comment in that Squarespace thread. I had an Excel sheet open on the side where I was just sort of tracking patterns. Like when someone would say something, I would add a one to like a general theme. And I had like five different general themes that people were mentioning. And I just saw that overwhelmingly the majority of people literally just wanted a way to collect an email address to get access to a page. My name is Ward Sandler. I'm the co-founder and CEO over at Memberspace. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Ward Sandler created the easiest way to integrate membership into your existing website. All this and more on Code Story. Ward Sandler had a nice upbringing in New Jersey and went to college in Hoboken, majoring in business tech. In fact, he met his co-founder there being in the same fraternity. He's married now, living in Pennsylvania, and is really into healthy living, fitness, nutrition, getting enough sleep, and recently started to learn jujitsu, which he describes as a bunch of if-then-else statements. He also supports and volunteers for organizations that help the wrongfully incarcerated, such as the Innocence Project and Defy, helping these individuals learn to start businesses when they are paroled. Both he and his co-founder were working for a company selling tax software to enterprises. Post its acquisition, they left and started building small-scale projects, finding a niche creating Squarespace sites. When working on these projects, people kept asking to add membership to their sites, and they found there wasn't a good way to do this, especially on the Squarespace forums. After reading through the comments, Ward realized that there was a huge opportunity to build a tool to solve this problem. This is the creation story of Memberspace. Memberspace is the simplest way to describe it. It's a way to turn any part of your existing website into members only. So for folks that are familiar with like a paywall concept, like the New York Times, for example, you can make it so that you have an existing website, right? You design that wherever you want, whether that's, you know, WordPress, Webflow, Squarespace, whatever. And then you designate which existing pages on that site should be locked down. So it's members only. And then how much it costs to get access to those pages. So that's what we're providing in terms of functionality. We bolt on to your existing website or CMS, and then you tell us which page URLs to protect and how much to charge for access to those. When Ryan and I uh, first left TaxStream, Thomson Reuters, and started our own you know, small consulting shop, doing various e-commerce projects, website projects, we kind of eventually found our niche, which was uh, Squarespace, believe it or not, just doing, building simple Squarespace sites and, and then providing ongoing support for those sites, which is pretty popular in the WordPress world. The idea of providing ongoing support for some kind of monthly fee, but that wasn't really a thing in Squarespace, at least not at any scale. So we, we were able to scale that up to have you know hundreds of customers and stuff doing that and it provide a really nice recurring revenue base. And from that, by working with all those Squarespace sites, obviously you're getting a lot of input from folks when they want you to build the site. One thing we kept hearing over and over was, hey, I want to add membership functionality to my site. We were like, well, you can't do that in Squarespace. It's just not a, 
good way to do it. So we researched some alternatives, but there were just not really, really good options out there. And eventually enough people had asked us about this that we started doing more research. And I explored the Squarespace forums and kind of found this was one of the biggest topics they had there was the ability to lock down pages for members only and charge for that. After reading through all the comments there, I realized this is actually a really big thing that a lot of people want and they're not satisfied with the existing solutions that they are paying for. And that's kind of the key here for folks out there doing product research. It's easy to find people complaining about things on the internet, right? That's probably one of the easiest things in the world to do. But <laughs> That is true. Very true. <laughs> the uh, trickier part is to find people complaining about things on the internet that they're already paying for. So it shows that it's still good enough or the problem is still painful enough that I'm willing to pay for a not great solution just because I have such a big problem. I need something. And so that's a good indicator that there's a, a market and that it's a market that's potentially ripe for disruption or at least for innovation. And that, that's kind of where our brain went was, okay, um, there's you know tens of thousands of people who are complaining about this issue and some percentage of them are paying to solve it and not happy. Why don't we try to make our own thing? And so that's when the, the birth of member space started. We just built a, a really rough, simple MVP that solved the core problem. And that core problem was, I want to restrict access to certain pages on my site. And I want people to give me their email address before they can get to that page. That's all they wanted, not even payment. Even more than that, just the core fundamental was, I want to collect an email address before people can get to a page. And that, that's what we did. So tell me about the MVP. Tell me how long it took to build. And you mentioned some of the tools, but what sort of tools did you use to, to bring it to life? A real, real simple Ruby on Rails, jQuery, SaaS for, uh, for CSS framework. Yeah, nothing, nothing too fancy. But yeah, in terms of the MVP, it was what I described was literally that's all we did. You could tell us which page URLs to protect. You could create m multiple plans, for example, plan one, plan two, plan three, and they're all free. Different plans can give access to, to different pages on your site. And someone needs to be on a certain plan to get access to the page. And you could collect email addresses by from people creating their account. So someone would sign up, name, email, password, and that's all they would have to do. Now they're on the plan and now they get access to the page. And, and that's it, it's that simple. People could log in and log out, but if they're not logged in and they're not on one of the plans and they can't get to the page. And that was literally all it did. So it was very, very, very basic. And the way we kind of launched it and got some traction was back to the Squarespace forum, we posted about it there. And they had this interesting feature in their forum where if you follow a topic and someone replies to the topic, everyone who's following it gets notified via email. So it's kind of a way to go around the back door to an email list in a sense um, of very interested prospects. And it's not spamming because it's totally on topic and everyone else was talking about different solutions. So it wasn't you know ridiculous to, to say, oh, by the way, here's a new option and it's free. We're looking for beta testers. So that's what we did. And we got you know 100 folks really quick who wanted to check it out and, and they were happy with it. And obviously that's that kind of began the product feedback loop that I'm sure a lot of folks out there are familiar with. We just kind of kind of building the plan as you're flying it, right? Everyone's sending in different pieces of feedback. You kind of pretty quickly realize what needs to be worked on next. And that's, that's kind of the path we took for the next uh, number of months. This is back in uh, the end of 2015, by the way, is when we launched the MVP. And then by April of 2016 is when we uh, actually launched paid, uh, like the ability to charge for membership. And that's when we actually started charging for member space. It was free up until then because we were actually dogfooding the product. Like we were using member space to, to run member space in a sense. Like we were, we had a bit of a custom build, but it was, it was still the core of it. And so once, once our customers were able to charge their members, that's when we started charging our customers. 
on the MVP, what what decisions and trade-offs did you have to make in the short term as far as, you know, we're just going to start with this feature set, right? You mentioned that a little bit, but dig into that some more. We're going to start with this feature set. We're not going to have paid wall. We're just going to have an email catcher, you know, and how did you cope with those decisions? And, and I'm also looking in towards the technology. When you build an MVP, you want to just get it out there. What sort of technology, you know, shortcuts or trade-offs did you have to make? In terms of technology shortcuts, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything that we were like, oh yeah, this is something we can't do right now. Like, for sure, we've way expanded our use of like AWS and the servers. So there weren't a ton of trade-offs. And I think part of that was because we started with such a simple MVP. And the way we were able to decide this is what we're building and these are the constraints is because I did that boring work of reading through literally every comment in that Squarespace thread. So we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of comments. I had an Excel sheet open on the side where I was just sort of tracking patterns. Like when someone would say something, I would add a one to like a general to like a general theme. And I had like five different general themes that people were mentioning. And I just saw that overwhelmingly the majority of people literally just wanted a way to collect an email address to get access to a page. It was like, okay, that's that's what we should build then. And we knew that that would be a good way for us to test. Is this something, do we have the core of this right? The ability to, to log in, sign up and get access is, is the fundamentals to a membership. Obviously charging is, is another key part. You can distill it down to just being free. And that's that's what we thought, okay, this is the simplest possible way to do it. And then we can get traction with this MVP That'll give us really good confidence that's worth spending the time to integrate with Stripe, which is what we use for processing payments for members. And obviously, anyone out there who's worked with Stripe knows, you know, it's a great payment gateway, but, you know, there's still a lot of work to get it set up correctly. And so before we went down that rabbit hole of, you know, spending X months getting Stripe to work and all the different things that go into that, we were like, all right, let's start simpler. And by simpler, you don't, you don't have to take payments. And then we also didn't have to process payments ourselves for customers, right? Because that's a whole nother bag of complication is when you have people who are paying you, you need, that all needs to work as well. There's all, you know, the fee, all the features around that, them getting invoices, them updating their credit card, failed payments, all that stuff we get to avoid by just having everything be free, both for our customers and our customers members, if that makes sense. So then, and you've kind of, you've kind of built up the case for this next question. So how did you progress the product after that and how did you mature it? And I think what is, what would be interesting to hear from you too, is how you built your roadmap, how you figured out, okay, this is the order of things, or this is what's the next most important thing to build based on what customers are telling us. That's probably one of the hardest parts of running a software company uh, is deciding what to do next, right? Especially as you grow and as you get traction and product market fit and customers and revenue coming in, the list of things that you could do seems to grow every day. <laughs> like even as you get more developers and increase your velocity of the new features out there, it just never ends. It's, it's just this forever list that forever expands, right? And you can definitely get overwhelmed by it if you let it. So you kind of have to really put some some constraints in there. And we've this is something we're still evolving. I definitely don't have like a, this is what we do and this works everyone kind of a pitch here. To go back in time to when, you know, 2016, when we were first launching, coming up with features, it's a little easier at that point, right? Because we, what we did was so basic that there were so many different pieces of feedback coming in about what people wanted. It was pretty clear though what the majority wanted. Like that's when you're first starting, you barely have any features. It actually is somewhat more simple because 
it was obvious that the next thing we needed was the ability to charge, right? Maybe 80% of all feedback we got was someone saying, this is cool, but how can I charge people for access? So it became obvious, right? We didn't have to like figure that out. It was just clear. And then, you know, from there, you know, hey, I need to integrate this with my email marketing. How do I do that? Right. So then it's like, okay, we can build some kind of export functionality or MailChimp integration. And you just kind of kept hearing these themes of like, this is what the majority of people are asking for. And it was very clear. Um, so that's kind of how we built the roadmap, just purely based on customer feedback. You know, that's when things start to get a little more squishy and, and difficult in terms of what to do next when you're getting, you know, a mix of everyone asking for a feature A, B, or C, and it's not really clear which one you should build. That's where things get a little trickier. Like I actually want to switch gears a little bit. So tell me how you built your team. How, how did you pick the people to join you? And what did you look for in those people to indicate they were the winning horses to join your team? So we took a, you know, a little bit of a strange approach to this. Some people really don't like this approach, but it's worked for us so far. So we work with mostly our friends. Um, so our first hire was our friend, Roger. And he was actually, we hired him actually when we were back when we were doing the Squarespace consulting. He was helping with actually building the websites and providing some of the support. And then he transitioned to doing support for member space. So he was like our first like hire. You know, he was a friend of ours. And so we trusted him. That, that's kind of how we saw it. And we saw that he had interest in learning HTML and CSS. So he was being proactive about learning. And that, you know, to us, that was like, okay, that's a good sign. He's trying to learn things. He's able to learn things. He's interested and motivated. The biggest thing was we trust him, right? Like we knew him, he was our friend. So we knew he wasn't gonna do anything shady, you know? And then we don't have to go through the process of vetting people and finding people, which we had no experience with doing. So that would also be a complete shot in the dark. And when you're first starting out, right? You know, things are precarious. You kind of have to get it right because you're so many things you need to work on and, and, and do to be distracted with trying to go out and learn how to hire people, hire someone and then make sure they're the right fit and onboard them and all that stuff. If you're hiring a friend, there's a lot more leniency. It's, a little, it's just easier <laughs> from our perspective. I'm sure people could counter examples to that, but for us, it worked. And then we kind of continued that trend. The next hire was our other friend, Chelsea, who we went to college with, and she was on our support team as well. So we, we were really big on support. We still are. That's like our number one feature is our support. But again, same reasons as Roger. It's someone we knew, someone we trusted, and someone that we knew had motivation and was a go-getter and, and empathetic and all, that, all those good qualities that you need in a, a support person. And then uh, from there, we needed to get more developers. So Ryan is the CTO. He was doing all of the development, all of the DevOps. You know, as you can imagine, it's pretty stressful. If, if something's not working, you're the only one who can figure it out. <laughs> That's not a fun role to be in for a long period of time. But we weren't at the point revenue-wise where we could hire, you know, a U.S. senior developer. Those kind of folks can command, you know, 120 to 150 or more thousand dollars a year, right? And so that's just that was just too much. So we looked uh, to South America. And we found this really great team uh, named Loop, who we still work with. They were able to do things, you know, for like a third or a quarter of the price of what an equivalent developer would cost in the U.S. and that we could afford. And they were a similar time zone. For Eastern time and mountain time is, is where Ryan is. He's in Colorado. I'm in Philadelphia. And uh, Loop, I think they're Eastern time. So they're similar time zones. So that, that worked great. And they spoke, they spoke, you know, good English and all that. So that's what we went with. And that, that, that we scaled that team up. Like they were an agency that we had one developer from, and then we just kept adding developers. You just, you know, you can just kind of increase number of developers from the agency whenever you want. So as we grew, we just kept popping in new developers through them and they would onboard them and it would make it a lot simpler for us to kind of just scale up development. 
And then from there, we hired another friend of ours, a friend of Chelsea's, uh, Jen. And then from there, we, we uh, kept going. We, we found a, a DevOps team that was remote in, uh, in Budapest, who, who does a great job for us. Uh, we've had a marketing now. That, that one was more of a traditional hire. We, we put out uh, something on WeWork Remotely, if anyone's familiar with that site. And we found our head of marketing, Omer. And then recently, we just hired two more senior developers that we found on WeWork Remotely. And those are US-based, because now we're at the point where we do have the kind of revenue that could support hiring uh, senior US developers. You know, entrepreneurship is risky, period. But you had two risky decisions as far as hiring personal friends and then hiring um, offshore agencies that both of those uh, scenarios kind of have mixed results. But it sounds like both of them really worked out great for, for you and your team and for member space. So that's that's fantastic. Uh, again, there's so many counterexamples to this. Uh, I'm sure there's lots of people who had nightmares hiring friends. I've, I've heard them on podcasts myself. I know there. I know personally people have had nightmares hiring overseas developers and DevOps and all that. So I don't know what we did that was so special that allowed us to, to not fall into that hole. But for one thing, we did talk to a lot of folks. Like We did vet a lot of agencies and stuff before we did it. But at the end of the day, we kind of just went with our gut. Like, you know, Ryan would interview them from a technical perspective, and then I would interview them, you know, more from like just a general, you know, business perspective, people perspective, that kind of thing. And we just went with our gut. We both have had, or both have pretty good intuition, I think, around, you know, is this person cool? Is this the kind of person we want to work with? Is there any, any red flags or is, is there something weird about them? We didn't really care about their resume or anything like that. That just never was important to us. It was more, how do we feel when we talk to these people? Is this the kind of person that I'd want to be dealing with day to day, problem solving, and especially if it's under stress, problem solving, right? And yeah, I think we just, uh, our, our gut led us to a good spot. We, we've been uh, batting, batting a thousand so far in terms of who we've hired. So let's touch on scalability. So did you build this in the beginning to scale efficiently or were you kind of fighting this as you grew um, and having to change technology and, and how you architected the solution? No, we definitely did not set ourselves up for scaling in like a great way. We, we didn't like completely flunk either, but the DevOps team that we hired was like a godsend because that was a, a recurring issue. We kept having server issues because it's just not Ryan's specialty DevOps. So he was just kind of <laughs> bouncing his head into a wall trying to figure everything out whenever we had issues. So having a DevOps team really helped us. Uh, I know that they're currently working on a project to help move us more towards uh, AWS Lambda so we can kind of infinitely scale up. But yeah, I mean, that was another example of a thing where it's like your customers don't care about you scaling up until it's a problem, right? You're always working on all the other short-term things that they need right now. And then eventually you get to the point where it's like, oh, you're stuck in the mud because you need to scale. And now I need to go take care of this. And that's kind of similar, a similar metaphor for like any kind of technical debt, which is something we're currently working through as well right now. There's always problems. There's like the, the DevOps and the dev problems, like the technical debt that you need to take care of and you know you need to take care of. It's kind of like that errand or that chore that you know you need to do, but you haven't done it yet. But you have to counter that, balance it with what your customers are demanding. And that, that's always a little tricky. And we're still trying to kind of figure out our rhythm and cadence there. But by having and being able to hire more people as you've been more successful, it really opens things up, right? Because I could have maybe half the team working on DevOps or, or, or legacy code uh, kind of maintenance stuff. And then the other half of the team working on new features and bug fixes and enhancements. When you're first starting out, though, our, our philosophy was to kind of just wait until it hurt. And then you would kind of focus on the scaling. And that's not necessarily the right approach for everybody, but that, that's what we did. 
Oh, that makes sense, especially from a startup standpoint. You want to you want to have unconstrained models as much as you can, and build it in such a way that you can get something out there fast, and then change it when you need to. When really, when the market needs you to. So that that makes total sense. Why you're taking that approach? I, I think that's a that's a solid approach. So as you step out on the balcony and look across all that you've built with Member Space, what are you most proud of? I'd say like the general success that we've seen from our customers, especially during this COVID time, which has been a pretty large period of growth for us, actually. So when I look out there and I see that we have customers who are generating millions of dollars through our platform, that's pretty cool. Like when I when I get emails or when I do uh, calls with customers and they're telling me, you know, thank you so much for building this. Like, this is amazing. It saved my business or I never would have been able to have this kind of a business if it wasn't for you. Like that kind of stuff, you know, that, that keeps you going, right? That's like the founder fuel that you need to uh, keep driving every day, even if you're not feeling 100%. There's one thing to build a product, right? And like to make it look pretty and whatever, and that, that's all one thing. But to see actual people using it, especially using it in the way it was intended, where it's like, this is made to, to create a membership business online easily for any website, especially if you're non-technical. That, that's kind of the, one, one of the main, main things with us is non-technical people can build scalable membership sites using their existing CMS. That kind of is the goal. And, and to see that realize and real people having significant businesses with it is just, that, that's super cool. And so that's kind of what drives me is to, I want to, I want to make that even easier. I want even more people to be able to get that kind of success. And so that, that's a forever problem that we're, we're trying to solve. Let's flip the script a little bit on that then. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I'd say one of the, one of the major ones we did was with our pricing, like in the beginning. We used to price based on the number of members that you had, which sounds like pretty intuitive, right? It's like, okay, as you get more members, you pay us more. That I think most people would agree. Yeah, that makes sense. And we did that because that's what we thought made sense. We had read a lot of blog posts about, you know, you have to pick a value metric and that's what you should charge people for. And so obviously if people have membership businesses, we thought, yeah, you would want to charge per member, just like, you know, MailChimp does, for example, right? Per subscriber uh, that when you get to a certain uh, level, then you need to upgrade to the next plan. And that's what we did. And we liked that model. It made sense. But customers, there were issues. A lot of customers pushed back on it. And the main pushback we got was that a member isn't necessarily the same thing, depending on what your business model is, right? So like, for example, if you're selling, you know, a, a $25 a month fitness membership where they're like you post a video every week right 25 a month okay that that one member pays you 25 a month that, that's that's something okay what if you're selling a, a course right uh, it's like a five module course and that costs 500 dollars one time to purchase that one person who purchased it that also is just one member and then you might have another example where someone's you know using member space at a not-for-profit just to protect like meeting minutes that you post on the website and they're not charging for it. It's just free, right? Each person that can get access is a free member. But those each would count as one member. From a pricing perspective, that was really kind of confusing and it annoyed a lot of people because they'd be like, well, if I have someone who I'm just charging once, I don't want them to count against my member total each month. It should only count once. And then we had people who were having free members saying, oh, well, free members shouldn't count at all. But then 
you can't just make it okay a member only counts if it's a recurring member because then that then what about all the folks that are using member space in different ways that are still getting value from it so it got really complicated and we had we constantly were kind of pivoting and shifting in and adding adding caveats to try to make it work and just it just didn't make sense so what we shifted to was transaction fees which a lot of people kind of intuitively think oh those are the worst right nobody likes Nobody likes transaction fees, but we found they actually correlate with the value way, way better, right? So if I'm charging you a say 2% transaction fee, that's the same 2% whether you're charging someone 25 a month or you're charging them 500 once, or you're charging them nothing because then we're getting no fee. So it actually perfectly correlates with the value of what you, you charge a member X and we take the same percentage relative of that charge. And so it nicely scales as you make more revenue, we make more money. And, and it's something that we can offer as like an incentive. So as you're making more money, you can upgrade plans and pay us a higher monthly fee with a lower transaction fee. But when you're first starting and you don't have revenue coming in, you can pay us a low monthly fee with a higher transaction fee. And we found that that's actually been what's worked the best for us. And that, that's what we're sticking with for the long term. Let's switch to you. Tell me about who influences the way that you work. A CEO, CTO, architect, person, really could be anybody. Name a person you look up to and why. You know, Jason Fried, I'm a big fan of uh, from the from Basecamp. I just, I've read, you know, all their books that they've put out there, you know, follow their podcasts. We're a customer of theirs. We use Basecamp internally at Memberspace. I just like the way they think about things. I don't agree with every single thing he says. I'm not like an evangelical necessarily, but I do just like how they're very clear about their thought process and they're they're very thoughtful in general about their product design and about the decisions they make of how they run their company. And I think I think it's easy to get caught up in in all the decisions you have to make when you're a founder, right? There's so many and it almost feels like there's more to make every day. But the way to avoid that is by thinking through your system, like your business, think of it as like a system or as a product that you're improving every day and, and innovating on to make things more scalable, to make decisions easier, to make to delegate things out. And I kind of got that philosophy from him, the way that he kind of described Basecamp, formerly 37 Signals, as a product that they're constantly working on to make better, um, like the business itself. And that was really inspirational to me. And it's kind of the way I think about things. Everything's very systems oriented, right? So there's always things to improve to make things more efficient so you can keep scaling without necessarily adding more bodies to the team, you know? So if you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? It's tough, right? Because you can't you can't just go back in time and, and know that it would work or not work. I mean, everything we've done so far that's led us here, um, you know, obviously it's worked to, to an extent. So I'm I'm happy with the decisions we've made. You know, there's some technical decisions that we made that we probably could have thought through a little bit more. But some of that again, it's hard to know to know things. You know, five years ago, now that it's 2020, you know, how fast the pace of the internet changes, um, especially with the way browsers work. Some of those things, you know, you wouldn't have known the information we know now. So I don't think I would necessarily change anything. I like the way we built things. I like that we really emphasize support. I like that we basically overhired for support in the beginning. I think that was worth it. We provided really, really good communication. Uh, we would quickly get back to folks. And that's something we became known for really fast. And I think that really helped establish our brand and allow people to trust us. Because at the end of the day, what we're doing is actually kind of important, right? It's like, we're like a payment platform, right? You're, you're using us to uh, protect potentially important content and charge money for it. 
we are the engine that's running your business. So people need to trust us and they want to be able to get answers when there's questions. So I don't have, yeah, I don't have any regrets with the way we've done things so far. Last question, Ward. You're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Maybe they're heading to an investment uh, pitch. What advice would you give to that person having gone down this road a bit? Oh, first I would say, are you sure you need investment? (laughs) Because uh, I'd say most companies probably should not take investment at least when they're first starting, like until you have product market fit, until you have you know a handful of people paying you real money for your product, I think investment can, can kind of lead you astray. Yeah, in terms of what you should focus on, you know, really paying attention to what the problem is, like making sure you're solving a problem that people want are willing to pay for and that there is evidence that they're looking for solutions, right? Everyone has cool ideas of, oh, I wish I wish you could do X or I wish I could do Y. But unless you can find actual evidence out there in the wild, aka the internet, like forums or Reddit or uh, Amazon reviews and anything like that, where like there's this data that people just put up there that is kind of unfiltered, we can read the, these raw responses and understand, okay, this is a problem that people are actually having. And I have proof that they're looking for solutions and I have proof that they're paying for it. Those are kind of like the key things to know that you're entering something that actually has a market, which is so, so important. If you, you need to know you're entering somewhere that actually has a market where people are going to pay for a solution, because otherwise you're just you're, if you're trying to create a market, that is so, so hard. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. And I think that's where a lot of businesses fail is they don't do the kind of boring, not sexy work of reading uh, comments on the Internet <laughs> to find out that there's proof that their idea is something people want. Well, Ward, thank you for being on Code Story. Thank you for telling the creation story of Member Space. Thanks for having me, Noah. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.